So let me let you in on a uh, a little secret right now, and you you can keep this between you and me, right? You're not going to tell anyone. When I was 18 years old, my entire personality was tied up in exactly three people. The first was Adam from the movie Mulholland Drive, played by Justin Theroux. Uh, Adam doesn't have a second name. I mean, this is a uh, <laughs> this is a David Lynch movie, so that probably that probably isn't surprising. I liked Adam's chunky glasses and his angular hairstyle. He was also a movie director, and as a film student, that obviously resonated with me because I was eighteen and tragically basic, you know. <laughs> he make movie me like movie me like him, you know. While we're here, for what it's worth, Mulholland Drive masterpiece, my second favorite movie of all time. Maybe. I'll talk about the rest of the top five at some point. The second person I based my entire personality around at 18 years old was Jim Morrison, lead singer of The Doors, poet, uh, owner of famously nice hair. I doubt there was an awful lot of depth to my reverence for Jim, if I'm being totally honest. I call him Jim, by the way. We're tight like that, you know, despite him dying long before I existed. I just, um, I just feel like he would want me to call him Jim, you know. And finally, the last ingredient in the emotionally stunted goulash that was my personality as an 18-year-old man-boy. My name is Lou, and you're listening to Depress Play, a podcast celebrating the soundtracks to our sadness. This episode is dropping on Valentine's Day, that one glorious day of the year where everyone feels pressured and put upon to express their love. You know what? Be the worst partner in the world for the rest of the year. But if you drop the ball on Old Valley D, we are sending the love cops around with furry handcuffs. Not for anything kinky either, you smart-brained heathen. Cut that out. It's all nonsense, and I'm single and forever alone, so for this special holiday, I'm exploring what I consider to be the best breakup album of all time, Grace, by a singer comprising one-third of my teenage personality, Jeff Buckley. It is serendipitous... There's my big word for the day. That I'd be covering Buckley after Elliot Smith. Not only did they both inform a big part of my emotional growth as a teenager, but they are diametrically opposed forces, at least in my mind. I talked in the Smith episode about how affected he was by the world. He always seemed as if he was going against every instinct he had just to express himself in his music. He cut a figure of constant self-doubt despite how, you know, generationally talented he was. And no matter how many people reminded him of his genius or how many accolades he received, he still went home and hated himself and everything that he created. Jeff Buckley stands at the other end of this spectrum, a force of unflinching bravado and self-confidence. 
a performer so comfortably free-spirited that you'd believe he could do anything. If Jeff Buckley stopped halfway through a set and told the crowd, all right, guys, now I'm going to levitate, I think everyone would just like wait patiently for his feet to leave the ground. Buckley's debut album, Grace, arrived in the summer of 1994 to a somewhat mixed reception, as landmark albums typically are, and has since been featured on more top albums of all time lists than you'll ever care to look at. I'm sure there's an issue of Knitting World (laughs) sitting on a table in the waiting area of your dentist office that puts like Grace at number two, just behind Knitting All the Day by Melanie Gall. That is a totally and absolutely real album, by the way. Right alongside the title on the cover of the album is the text, Knitting Songs from World War I. Now I hear you, I hear you. What tracks might I know off that album, Lou? Well, here's one for you. Mothers Sitting Knitting Little Mittens. Which, honestly could be a verse from an MF Doom track. Uh, There's also a track, rather bluntly, called Gertie, get on with your knitting! And then there's one after that called Stick to your knitting! I mean, I hope Gertie's in a union because this doesn't seem like a good working environment. So Gertie, get on with your knitting Take up your needles and wool Start once again with the pearl and the plain Same as they taught you at school So what is Grace, thematically speaking? Buckley said the following Grace is a death prayer, not one of sorrow, but of freeing yourself from the idea of death Now I hear you, Lou, that doesn't sound like a breakup album But what is death? Everything dies. Living beings die in a very medical sense. Our bodies, you know, stop doing body things. Our hearts stop beating. Our brains stop thinking about what's for dinner. This is a kind of death. But ideas die too. Personalities, feelings. Ego death refers to essentially wiping your mental slate clean to such an extent that perhaps you forget words or movements. It's the death of the self and everything but the physical. So when grace is referred to as a contemplation on death, I see it as the death of love, a series of chapters in a book about what happens once it's over. Each chapter is a unique micro-death and another stage in the journey past love. In a post-breakup stupor, you could listen to any one of several songs from Grace and feel totally seen by it, but it's more cathartic to just start from track one and, you know, lay face down, occasionally screaming into a pillow for the complete experience. One thing that's been a curiosity in researching for this episode is how many different meanings and interpretations Buckley provides for his own music. 
Mojo Pin, the very first track on the album, has several different explanations, and they're all pretty different. And sometimes he'll say things that are wildly off base with the vibe of the music. Oh, it's my time coming. I'm not afraid. Afraid to die. Paraphrasing once again, but Buckley says the title track, Grace, was essentially about dropping his girlfriend off at the airport. Buddy, I, I don't know if you've heard your own song, but the lyrics read like you're dying. Perhaps Buckley misdirected intentionally, it's possible. But what I sense is actually happening is that he just felt his way through music. He didn't sit down before writing and say to himself, well, this one's about Sarah and that time she dumped me outside of McDonald's while I was eating my Happy Meal. Instead, he just kind of snatched words and feelings out of the ether and linked them together. In the documentary The Making of Grace, which is available on YouTube and cut into nine three-minute parts for reasons that I can't fathom, <laughs> record executive Steve Berkowitz talks about Buckley's recording space for the album being a collection of small areas, including one for a band and one for kind of freeballing and performing acoustically so that when inspiration struck, there wouldn't need to be any time wasted setting up different environments. Instead, Buckley could just rock up to a space as and when he felt the urge and start a session. On the back of this, producer Andy Wallace said that Buckley would come to him with recordings well over 10 minutes long that lacked any real structure and insist that they were that they were album ready. Wallace would then need to talk him into making those pieces more refined and better arranged. These anecdotes feed directly into that felt experience that I think Buckley had when he was making music. David Lynch, my personal favourite filmmaker and generally just favourite human being, has a quote that talks on this kind of creativity. Sometimes, I always liken it to fishing. Fishing. You have a, a desire for an idea. A desire, I say, is like a bait on the hook. So you desire an idea, and more often than not, the ideas will start coming. And when you, they enter the conscious mind, boom, you see them, hear them, feel them, and write them down. And as I always say, I never get the whole thing at once. I get fragments, like little fish. And when you get one fish, that first fish that you fall in love with, you're really rolling, even if it's just a fragment of the whole. Buckley's approach to Grace feels a lot like this, delving into the sea of ideas, plucking fishes out, powerful and pure ideas, huge and abstract feelings, then spreading them across a dreamlike mood board of heartache. So he has these fragments of feeling that make up a whole. It kind of contributes to the feeling that I get from Grace as an album. It feels very abstract and dreamlike, which is what David Lynch movies often feel like. So let's do it. Let's talk about Grace. I'm going to go track by track, giving ideas on what each one means on its own and perhaps how it fits into the larger breakup collage that's forming around it. Don't want to weep for 
album begins with Mojo Pin, a song about infatuation, the tethering of oneself to another person, and how conflicting and painful it is to want something and not have it. If Grace is a journey through breakup, then I guess this first track is kind of like spotting the toxic codependency of a bad relationship and reckoning with how destructive that is. I always think the beginning of Mojo Pin sounds like someone tuning the most serene radio you've ever heard. And in fact, pieces of this song, like the way Buckley's voice holds the word so and cycles up through pitches, sounds like the music tuning itself in real time. Even the structure of the song fluctuates, with the verses being kind of quite dreamy and smooth, then just being absolutely obliterated by a chorus that only grows in size and aggression each time it comes in, with the final chorus just being an atom bomb. The only thing left behind after it is that serene radio tuning from the start. As a starting point, Mojo Pin is not only calibrating itself, but us, the listener. It's setting us up for an album of fluctuating tones and feelings, the kind that we've all felt when we've lost the love of somebody. So I thought it'd be neat to do a favourite line from each song. That'd be neat, right? (laughs) I wish people said neat more. It's like the perfect word when cool doesn't cut it. It's it's like cool, but with no sunglasses. My favourite line from Mojo Pin is, memories fire, the rhythms fall slow. The, uh, The fire in this line feels like it's doing two jobs. The firing off, or triggering, but also like the setting ablaze, as if the rhythm is being held in the fire and forced to burn alongside the memory. What makes the line doubly interesting are the instruments, which are swelling and rushing at the same time Buckley is singing. Kind of like how a person might be panicked and rushed when they're threatened by danger. This again adds to the fluctuating and purposely scattershot feeling of the song. Honestly, what a, what a great opening track. The second song is the title track, Grace, which feels like the momentary realisation of a breakup. The image that's burned into your brain of the person leaving, all the thoughts colliding at once of this potentially being the last time you'll see them, whether you should say or do something, thoughts of being alone and the vacuum that that person leaves behind. This song is their departure 
suddenly hitting you in a very real way. The structure and composition of Grace has a lot less panic than Mojo Pin. The groove is steadier. That's not to say the music is ordinary or run-of-the-mill, but unlike Mojo Pin, we're not taking a canoe ride down a quiet lake that's, you know, frequently disturbed by a B-52 bomber. That said, Buckley's vocals are still 110% and actually go to like 150% on the back half where he's like just tunefully wailing. One thing I really like is that in the, I don't know what you'd call it, post-chorus. <laughs> Listen, I'll reiterate, as I did last episode, I have no understanding of music on a technical level. Like, I, I barely understand what a bridge is or a time signature. I'm truly flying blind and upside down. So, that said, after what I'm calling the post-chorus, and in fact, throughout the song, in places, there's this ticking clock sound. So that ticking noise, it comes after the verse, and the rain is falling, and I believe my time has come. It reminds me of the pain I might leave, leave behind. And then it abruptly stops in step with the rhythm by a drum hit that brings the song back. It feels in conversation with those moments following a breakup when you feel 100 things at once and you feel like you need to say something, but know that every moment that you're not saying something is making it harder to say something. And before you know it, that person is walking away and you're kind of paralyzed to do or say anything. My favorite line from Grace is, I'm not afraid to go, but it goes so slow. It's a harrowing line, but the way he practically screams it makes it hit different. It's also in perfect sync with that ticking clock from earlier, how time disappears so fast when you need it, then lingers and tortures you when you just wish it would pass. The third track, Last Goodbye, feels like a companion piece to the previous song, Grace, where you're seeing that person for the first time since that breakup. There's a real sort of, I'm coming over to get my stuff energy to this song. You see each other and you have a little kiss and a cuddle, but both know it's likely for the best that it's over. I would guess that if you asked 10 people to pick a song on this album that sounds like it was made in 1994... A majority would pick Last Goodbye, and I'm not saying that as a diss. I, I adore this song. This is my second favorite song on this album. We've just had two songs where Buckley is absolutely wailing his heart out, panicked and rushed and racing against time, and now we get this 
gorgeous pop song that's boppy and upbeat with like a real subtle tinge of melancholy. Grateful, but with a little cloud just looming over. It's the perfect way to punctuate the journey that we've been on, arriving at a time on the album where we're, we're kind of thirsty for levity. It's like a three-act play. The first act was a wild and erratic ride through infatuation. The second act was a sudden wave of grief from loss. And now this third act is resolute, talking about what's been learned and how we've grown and the enrichment that we're carrying forward. My favourite line off this absolutely delightful song is... Did you say, no, this can't happen to me? Did you rush to the phone to call? Honestly, this is just a really fun part to sing along to. <laughs> it's not particularly abstract or worthy of dissection, but that's okay, right? Sometimes a line can just hit because it's real. I think that's what I love about this song in general. It's not especially quotable. It's not line after line of absolute gems that, you know, teenage me would send to girls I fancied, like in Lover You Should Have Come Over or Hallelujah. But it's a song you can listen to and from the very first verse be like, holy shit, yes, Jeff, yes, truly, truly must I, must I dream and always see your face? Can it please be a different face for just like one night? I will give some credit though. The outro does go in a bit. The line, thinking so hard on her soft eyes, might have gotten some work from 18 year old Lou. Lilac Wine Wine is a cover of a Nina Simone cover of a James Shelton song. Thematically, I can see its place on the album. If we're continuing this journey like it's a narrative, then this song is, you know, getting sourced a bit after that person has taken their stuff. Let's say Last Goodbye happened at 4pm, then Lilac Wine is probably around 9pm when you're three glasses deep in, I don't know, Lilac Wine and feelings are starting to hit again, you know? Honestly, I'm kind of tempted not to delve too deep into this since it's a cover. It's kind of like asking someone how they feel and them sending you back a meme. I mean, it might be a really good meme. It might do a lot of heavy lifting. But I wanted to know in your own words, not how you're doing via an animated GIF of, say, a cartoon dog in a hat sitting in a burning house drinking a coffee and saying, this is fine. Do you know what I mean? If you frame the fifth track now, So Real, as a past tense recollection, rather than happening in Buckley's present, then this is also a run-on of the past few tracks. Like he's reminiscing about the comfort and safety he had around his ex and how he misses it. I don't know why this is, but I always thought of this song being lyrically a lot fuller than it actually is. Like it's really just one complete verse 
sandwiched between Buckley singing, oh, that was so real, like over and over and over again. There's a tiny two-line verse to kick the song off, but the bulk of the lyricism arrives like right in the middle. This makes the structure of the song kind of dreamy and incoherent. Instead of giving more details on his perspective and his feelings, Buckley keeps slipping back into the chorus like it's a mantra. Mantra, mantra, mantra. Choose your own adventure. One that grows in intensity and urgency like Mojo, Pin and Grace had done before. Buckley's use of repetition feels like a person slowly losing their grip on what real actually is. In horror movies, characters do this on sight of something otherworldly. And as that presence looms larger and larger, that character triples down on their disbelief with their, their hands over their eyes, almost just as a comfort mechanism, despite reality staring them quite literally in the face. When you are in love, your senses are operating at like superhero levels. The experiences that you burn into your brain are so much more than just a distorted view on how a day looked. You're recording feeling, sound, smell. It's all compounding into a vividly tangible memory. One of the first girls I ever properly dated wore this perfume that I never got the name of because, you know, I was a, I was a teenager and at that age, a lot of us suffer from a severe case of something I'm calling detail blindness. So this perfume, which remains nameless to this day, the few instances I've smelt it in passing just out in the world, I have this like outer body experience it's honestly hard to describe it's like as soon as i catch the scent my body time travels and my brain places me like cozied up to that girl or driving us somewhere you know like any number of scenarios but it's honestly remarkable <laughs> the level of full body takeover that one triggered sense puts in motion the song So Real feels like one of these sensory takeovers, but triggered in close proximity to a breakup. So essentially, when it can do the most devastation. Okay, it's time for me to pick a favourite line. And honestly, there is not much uh, competition as far, <laughs> as far as lines go here. I mean, I could pick an isolated instance of Buckley singing, Oh, that was so real. I mean, that'd be pretty funny, right? For instance, if I was to tell you my favorite is the 12th time that he says, oh, that was so real, where he screams real, real, and really goes for it at the end. I'm only half joking. That actually is my favorite delivery of that line in that song. However. My favorite line overall is, and I never stepped on the cracks because I thought it'd hurt my mother. Ironically, wait, is it ironic? Someone, someone get Alanis on the phone for this. Ironically, that line is about the realest thing that Buckley says the whole song. 
He's exposing a very tangible weakness of his. The kind of behaviour that could be chalked up to superstition, or worse, an obsessive-compulsive disorder. In a song that's largely about his feelings, or links to someone else, right in the dead centre is Buckley exposing something personal about himself. Fuck, dude, I mean, (laughs) what can anyone say about Hallelujah anymore? Uh, Are we allowed, am I allowed to analyze this? Is that even legal? I doubt it. Plus, I can feel both Leonard Cohen's and Jeff Buckley's spirits like quietly judging me for even thinking about doing something like that. I said earlier that I didn't want to discuss a cover in detail, but, you know, sometimes an artist embodies a cover to such an extent that people forget it's a cover entirely. Like, I spent a majority of my young adult life thinking this was a a Jeff Buckley original. When young idiot Lou was texting girls, your beauty in the moonlight overthrew me. (laughs) I was sat there thinking to myself, Jeffy boy, you've done it again. Little did I know it was Lenny boy that deserved the credit. The Leonard Cohen original from his album Various Positions is decidedly more religious. Like the back half talks about taking names in vain and the Lord of Song, you know, godly sort of stuff. But fear not, true believers, because the cool thing about Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, Hallelujah, (laughs) I can't even cover it, is that much like a sports team, there's enough verses to kind of just sub in and out the ones that you prefer. There's Such a legend around the size of this song that John Cale, founder member of the Velvet Underground, general granddad of art rock, allegedly received 15 pages of lyrics from Cohen when he was arranging his own version. And in fact, Buckley's version owes a lot more to Cale's arrangement and performance of the song than Cohen's. He turned the doo-woppy warmth of the original into something that was altogether like harrowing and ethereal. When you hear all three versions side by side, it's hard to argue that Hallelujah achieved its final form through Jeff Buckley. His version has this ghostly, haunting quality to it that sounds like all the best and all the worst of love combined into one thing. It's an echo in your soul that just reverberates out from the very centre. No one part of the song typifies this more than that simple, iconic sigh at the start. I mean, it does so much work before you've even heard a note, a musical note of the song. 
And the crazy thing is, every time you revisit Hallelujah, that sigh gets louder and louder. There's resignation in that sigh, there's conceit. But even so, like, it's not negative. It's not someone who's given up. It's someone who's weary, but willing to keep fighting. As the song says, love is not a victory march. It's a cold and it's a broken. Hallelujah. Call me basic, but Lover You Should Have Come Over is my favourite song on Grace. As a young, sad fuckboy who didn't realise until my early 20s that I was in fact the problem, the line, maybe I'm too young to keep good love from going wrong, lived rent-free in my head for several years. And, you know, post-fuckboy awakening, I still think this is just a beautifully written and painfully accurate description of what longing feels like. It describes the kind of desire for intimacy and connection that that feels like it could only be so tangible in your 20s. It's almost nostalgic to listen to because I think about just how overwhelming and all-encompassing those feelings were. And listen, keeping it Buck fifty one hundo right, right now, you can guarantee with one hundred percent certainty that I texted a girl all my blood for the sweetness of your laughter at least once back then. I probably also hit like an X with you're a tear that hangs inside my soul forever, and then just spent every ten minutes after checking to see if she'd read it. Lover You Should Have Come Over, which I will now refer to as simply Come Over, because boy howdy, is that a lot to keep repeating. Come Over and Last Goodbye are kind of peas in a pod for me. They're the two most accessible songs on this entire album. They're the two songs I could see getting a lot of features in like 90s movies and TV shows. But the thing about Come Over is it's actually just really well written. Like musically, it's poppy and sweet and easy to listen to. But lyrically, it's like Gen X's Hallelujah. It's wall to wall, one of the most quotable love songs I've ever heard in my entire life. If you've ever missed someone for even like a minute, this song has seen you. It's seen you and studied you and served you your feelings with fries and a drink. I mean, my kingdom for a kiss upon her shoulder. Come on. My kingdom for a kiss upon her shoulder. All my riches for her smiles when I've slept so soft against her. Come on, dude. All my riches. Those lines are back to back, by the way. I'm 
Oh man, I meant to do a favorite line now, but it's just it's not possible. You're asking me to do something that is not possible. There's no physical way for me to pick a single line from this song and say it out loud like it's the best one. My mouth refuses. Just pick one of the many lines I've already quoted, all right? In fact, here you go. My favorite line is the entire song. There, I did it. I am going to be so real right now and tell you that I, I skip Corpus Christi Carol almost every time I listen to this album. Uh, don't haunt me, Jeffrey. I'm, well, actually, maybe haunt me. That might be fun. Buckley included this song as an ode to his high school friend, Roy Rollo, which, by the way, what a name. He sounds like a character from, from a 90s Saturday morning cartoon. If you, if you told me Roy Rollo was the main adversary of the biker mice from Mars, I would happily believe you. There's no time. I'm going to talk about the last two songs on Grace together because as good as they each are in their own right, they both serve a similar purpose within the breakup album motif that I'm etching out here. Eternal Life is a good kind of, I've been crying for three hours and now I really just need to air punch like a psycho for four minutes straight. So it's a it's a good opportunity to get up, wipe those tears, and just you know throw windmills for a bit. Create your own mosh pit. And then Dream Brother hits, and you know you can cool down, catch your breath, grab yourself a, a sunny D or some purple stuff from the fridge. You know, get a little introspective. This is. Another song for a friend, this time Chris Dowd, who apparently had a baby on the way but was still abusing his vices to excess, which is a story that mirrors Jeff Buckley's own almost one-to-one. Jeff's father, Tim Buckley, had died of a heroin overdose while Jeff's mother was still pregnant. And Dream Brother is a, uh, is a reckoning with that as much as it is a cautionary tale for his friend Chris. And that concludes Grace, the greatest breakup album of all time. Now, there might be some, some Jeff heads out there, some diehard Jeff heads saying, wait a minute, you didn't talk about Forget Her. This entire episode is null and void. You failed me. You failed my family. You call yourself a journalist. Let me stop you right there. I've never called myself a journalist. And I never will. And also, adjusts glasses. Actually, Forget Her wasn't included in the original release of Grace. I don't know what voice that was. For real, though, it was added to the track list later on. So in keeping with the intent and purpose of one Mr. Buckley, I've left it out. I wanted to go back to front, or rather front to back, 
on the grace that he left us with. Now, I've intentionally avoided talking about things beyond the scope of grace. I really wanted to make this about that album and how great and important it is. I didn't want to delve into like Buckley's difficult time with his dad's legacy. His dad was also a musician, quite a uh, cultishly famous one. His mythic time at Chennai, which I only recently discovered is how you pronounce that. I was calling it Sinni for 30 years. It's Chennai. So there's that period of his life, which is fascinating, but I didn't want to touch that either. The same to the same extent, I didn't want to get into his untimely and tragic death. Uh, there's sketches for my sweetheart, the drunk, which is a quote unquote follow up album, but I, I'm of the opinion that it's not because it wasn't something he arranged and put together himself. It was, it was his estate that essentially arranged and put out that album. So. These are all things that I wanted to put to the back and just focus on this singular piece. Grace is like an alien artifact left behind to help civilization understand itself better. For people to understand each other better. For you to understand yourself better. Love is perhaps the most profound thing anyone can experience in their lifetime. And equally, losing love is just as confounding. It's a scattered mire of emotions, a thorn bush of feeling. We get stuck and cut trying to get through these experiences. But grace is a compass, it extends a hand through the impenetrable and just guides us on that concludes the second episode of depressed play thank you for making it this far i've now covered the two musicians who were absolutely crucial to my emotional development as a teenager. So who the hell knows where we go from here? I have some ideas though. So follow, subscribe, like, share, scream, all that engagement-y kind of stuff would be just, just neat. <laughs> just neat. Perhaps more importantly, please comment or get in touch if this episode resonates with you. There's a few ways to reach me. I'm on threads and Instagram at local sports team fan. That's all one word. Local sports team fan. Uh, you can even email depressedplaypod at gmail.com. In fact, on my threads account, once again, that's, uh, that's local sports team fan, all one word. On threads, I'm regularly like posting slowcore, folksy, and ambient music recommendations. So if you're interested in some real sadcore music, I'm putting in the work. So check it out over there one last time. That is local sports team fan. All one word. 
on threads and Instagram. And finally, happy Valentine's Day. Whether you're forever alone like me or enjoying it with someone, I hope you're doing okay. And if not, there is always grace. Be well. See you soon.